The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. It's entitled Rape and Revenge, which is not a title you find often in church. Now, as some of you know, I sent out an email to all the women in the church earlier um, Thursday, Friday, uh, basically giving them a heads up of uh, the sermon coming, asking for prayer. Because um, we're in Genesis 34. This is a, uh, a chapter that doesn't often get preached. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Thank you for loving us, even though at times we can be such incredible sinners. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we face a text that we would rather avoid. So Lord, give us the courage to face these hard truths honestly. Convict us of our sin. Comfort us by your grace that we might be people who comfort one another with the comfort you bring to us. For this, we need your grace, and by your Spirit, we ask that you would bring that to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Many years ago, when I was in seminary, I remember watching a presidential debate. And then Vice President George H.W. Bush was running against Governor Michael Dukakis. And at their second presidential debate on October 13, 1988, it appeared that Governor Dukakis made a serious error. And it started right at the very beginning of the debate, and it overshadowed the whole debate. The noted journalist at the time, Bernard Shaw, was serving as the moderator of the debate. And uh, with his very first question, he asked Governor Dukakis, quote, Governor, if Kitty Dukakis, his wife, were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? And Dukakis replied, No, I don't, and I think you know I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. And then he went on to explain his stance on the death penalty. And after the debate, Dukakis told his campaign manager, Susan Estrick, that he was sorry. Many observers felt Dukakis' answer lacked the passion that one would expect of a person dis discussing the rape and death of a loved one. And I remember being shocked by this somewhat clinical answer he gave to what was a pretty emotional question. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, he's not upset at all. And I remember watching this with Joanne and saying something to the effect of, if someone raped or murdered you, I'd want to kill him. I don't know if I'd do that or not, but I would want to. And many people, including the candidate himself, believe this lack of passion to such an emotionally charged question cost Dukakis the election, as his national poll numbers dropped from 49% to 42% that night. It was just three weeks before the election. And I think that most of us, and for a moment I'll be speaking for the men here, would probably react somewhat like me. 
there would be indignation and anger, and we would want to do something about it. And I don't think, uh, for the most part, that we would stop to question whether or not it was the right thing to do. We wouldn't ask if it was righteous or sinful. We wouldn't consider what was the wisest course of action. You mess with my woman, you incur my wrath, period. And that's the situation that we're dealing with here in Genesis 34. There are four sins laid out here. And probably if we went deeper, we could come up with a bunch more. There is nothing particularly positive in this story. And if I didn't preach through books of the Bible and have a policy against skipping any of the hard texts, there is no way I would ever choose to preach on this chapter. But God put it in here, and I believe God has placed this story in the Scriptures for a reason, and I think the gospel of God's grace speaks directly to these issues. Though after we go through the text, I'll focus in on one issue in particular. So with all that said, let's jump into the text and see what it says. So turn with me to Genesis 34, starting at verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 and deal with sin number 1, which is sexual violence. Sexual violence. It starts off, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now, as far as we know, there's only one girl among Jacob's children. There may have been more, but there's only one that's named, Dinah, the daughter of the unloved Leah. And Leah's children, as compared to Rachel's, were less favored by Jacob. And Dinah appeared to have been little, of little interest at all to Jacob. This coupled with the fact that Jacob was not where God wanted him to be, either geographically or spiritually, left her particularly vulnerable. And so here in Shechem, young Dinah is pushing the boundaries when verse 1 says, she went out to see the women of the land. Now, in that day and time and culture, girls of marriageable age were not permitted to leave the tents of their people to go about visiting others without a chaperone. In fact, the Hebrew term went out bears this sense of impropriety, the idea of she went out secretly, likely she went out behind Leah's back. And the worst happens. Dinah becomes a victim of a violent rape, verse 2. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And those three verbs, seized, lay, humiliated, describe a progression of violence 
This is what our justice system would call aggravated rape. Well, unlike the case of Amnon's rape of Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, and if you read there, it says after he raped her, Amnon despised her. And there it says in 2 Samuel 13, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. But in this case, we read that Shechem becomes consumed with Dinah. As we see in verses 3 and 4, it says his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Shechem's brutal violence has somehow changed into tender affection. Basically, he falls madly in love although I think it's doubtful if he could distinguish passion from love. But this young prince proposes a proper marriage. And as shocking as the rape of Dinah was, we're equally shocked by Jacob's non-response. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. No more the father of Shechem went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now, Jacob's silence may have been prudential. Some commentators suggest he deliberately waited for his son's return so he would have backup, so to speak. Uh, I disagree. I think Jacob is merely being his old apathetic self again. Because in future chapters, we're going to see his passionate love for Joseph and Benjamin and his anguish at their misfortunes. The truth is, I think, is that Jacob never cared much for Leah and his attitude trickled down to her daughter and her six sons. Indeed, Leah's less loved sons would be at the forefront of selling his most favorite son uh, into slavery in Egypt. And so here we have Jacob's callous indifference towards Dinah, and that just fuels her brother's anger. We read there and their fury, verse 7, the sons of Jacob came in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he, Shechem, had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Two things here. One, it seems as the sons are responding properly to the demeaning of Israel as well as to that of Dinah. The word that it said in verse 7 is very important. That phrase, an outrageous thing in Israel. This is the very first time in the scriptures where the word Israel is used to, to refer to a people or a nation, a people group. Up to now, it's only been Jacob's new name. And this is the first time it's used to describe something bigger, greater than that. And that indicates a number of important things. First of all, it indicates that Jacob's sons had a realization now that they're different from the world, from everybody else. Because of the covenant of God uh, with them, there's something different about them. They're set apart. They're distinct. But it also recognizes and lets us know that they now have this high uh, moral notion about the institution of marriage and family and sexual purity. 
And they understand that because Jacob had become Israel, that the relationship of Israel to God uh, uh, is being ignored here. That the rape of his daughter is a crime against Israel as a people. But tragically, Jacob sees neither. And he doesn't stand up for either his daughter or his people. And since Jacob doesn't stand up for Dinah, two of her older brothers decide uh, essentially to take matters into their own hands, which brings about a scene of verbal violence. Verbal violence. This is sin number two. This is the longest section of this uh, chapter, starting at verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing. To give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Notice who's answering them. It ain't Jacob. It's the sons. Verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out to the gate of the city. So what we have here is Hamor and Shechem address Jacob and his sons without any apology. This is a small matter, which they believe they had a reasonable and generous solution that Jacob's family would like. But note they're careful not to mention two things. First, they never mention what Shechem had done to Dinah. And second, they never mention that they have Dinah in Shechem's house, as we'll see in verses 17 and 26. So they have the upper hand here, notwithstanding that they're willing to make it right. So the father speaks first, 
And he says, make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, take our daughters for yourself. Essentially, this meant, hey, no hard feelings. Let's get these two kids married and we'll be one big happy family. Which is something that Israel could never do. Hamor's offer sort of pulsed with economic appeal. You get property in Canaan, you'll get grazing rights, you get the freedom to live anywhere. In effect, Hamor is promising what God had promised Israel. And it's very enticing. It's a shortcut to the promised land. He's promising them something that God had promised them. And that's an important part of the story. Because for them to accept this, they basically have to reject God's promise to accept Hamor's promise. And as he finishes, Shechem jumps in. He assumes that Jacob's family is uh, sufficiently placated to accept this offer. Look at verse 11. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So impatient Shechem is extraordinarily generous in his offer. The price of the bride is uh, pretty much fixed by custom so that this offer of name your amount is kind of unheard of. And then the promise of an additional gift for the family is an added bonus. And clearly the father and son here expect there's going to be immediate acceptance. Of course, Hamar and Shechem didn't understand who they're dealing with, and especially their God-given religious principles. Now, as the writer, Moses warns the reader in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And here the story turns very dark. Jacob's sons justify their deceit by the scandalous nature of the crime done to their sister. And though it's not specifically mentioned, she's still essentially a hostage in Shechem's house. And the brother's speech is of uh, one of deviousness worthy of a Flannery O'Connor novel. Starts in verse 14. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now the offer is plausible to the Shechemites because it reflects normal practice among the tribes of Israel. Genesis 17, our responsive reading this morning, installed circumcision as the sign of the covenant and the indispensable right of admittance into Israel. And Jacob's sons have no intention of extending their religious influence, much less the knowledge of God to the Shechemites. Their goal is genocide, not evangelism. And even more importantly, this is the biggest section of the chapter, there's an abuse of the holy. The sign of the covenant, circumcision, Israel's most cherished symbol of faith, now becomes a tool of atrocity. 
the desecration of the covenant sign as a means to gain revenge and the widening of revenge to the murder and plunder of an entire community is an immense crime deserving utter condemnation. The great Presbyterian preacher of the last century, Donald Gray Barnhouse, wrote about this. The sign of the covenant was appropriated by Shechem to gratify his lust, by Hamor to increase his cattle, and by the sons of Jacob as a cover for murder. The sons of Jacob had taken what God had given as a holy religious sign and used it for their own wicked ends. Jacob's sons aren't thinking about anything other than revenge here. They're certainly not thinking about God. And Shechem's not thinking about anything but Dinah. And so they strike this deal. And all that remains is to get the consent of the male population of Shechem, which is not a foregone conclusion. And here Hamor and his son essentially show themselves to be equally masters of deceit as they concealed the whole situation with Dinah. They never mention anything that happened, but they just lay out the domestic and financial benefits while making no mention also of their promise to the Israelites. So the bottom line selling point is in verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And so the people agree. But in this case, the deception, the verbal violence, leads to death. And that's what we see next with sin number three. Starting in verse 25, we have physical violence. We had sexual, verbal, and now physical violence. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. <coughs> the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Now, the birth order of Dinah's uh, first four brothers is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And it's the middle two who carry out this massacre. As to why Simeon and Levi did all the killing, we can only speculate. We know that Reuben, who's the oldest, is the least murderous of the brothers, uh, being the one later in Genesis 37, convinces the others not to kill Joseph, but merely to sell him into slavery. And Judah's lack of participation remains a mystery, especially since he's going to show himself to be ethically challenged in his own affair with Tamar in Genesis 38. I think there's only two Tamars in the Old Testament. Both of them get raped probably why it's not a common name today. Reuben has his own affair in Genesis 35 with Bilhah. Notice an unhealthy pattern here. In any event, it's two of Dinah's big brothers who exact the revenge. And here we have what I would call biblical realism. The Bible doesn't spare its readers the awful truth. These two are cold and calculating killers. 
The third day following the circumcision would be the most painful and incapacitating, so Simeon and Levi are counting the hours and sharpening their swords. Starting at verse 25, On the third day, when they, the Shechemites, were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. So in tandem, these brothers engage in this bloody killing spree, charging from house to house, shoving screaming wives and children out of the way and hacking their helpless victims to death. And this murderous rampage ends with the executions of Hamor and Shechem, who's the groom-to-be, after which these blood-soaked brothers get their trembling sister and lead her out of this wailing town. The whole scenario is shocking. And it's just as shocking to the ancient readers as it is to modern readers. Because the ancient law is what? We call it lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that's now been trampled by Simeon and Levi. There's no equity here. There's exponential revenge. The brothers' actions offended every tribal, society, and cultural custom. And then the sons of Levi, which I think is still referring to Simeon, or the sons of Jacob, still referring to Simeon and Levi, says, came upon the slain and plundered the city. They take everything, including all the wives and children. It's a pretty desolate picture. All that's left are the bones and the barren homes of the Shechemites. And years later, as Jacob lay on his deathbed and started blessing his sons, he actually pronounces a, what you might call an anti-blessing on Simeon and Levi. At the end of the book in Genesis 49, it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. This is his blessing. Everybody's in line. They're waiting to be blessed by dad. And this is what he says. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Thanks, Dad. What a great blessing. Actually, nobody escapes censure on this infamous day in Shechem. Nobody looks good, not even one. And despite the awful rape and the horrific revenge, the one who ends up, I think, looking worst of all is none other than their father, Jacob himself. And that's because of his sinful silence. And that's sin number four. His sinful silence. We'll start, read the last few verses here. And we get this pathetic dressing down of the two sons. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our daughter like a prostitute? Now Jacob's in full force here. He's morally weak. He's unwilling to pay the cost of right actions. He's untrusting of God. He's unmindful of the welfare of his children and the future of his people. The cost of Jacob's sinfulness 
is immense. Rape, deception, revenge, all kinds of violence. In Shechem, God allowed Jacob to experience the appalling weight of his sinfulness so that eventually he would return to his call. And Jacob here is pathetic for what he did not say. He didn't condemn the massacre. He didn't condemn his sons for breaking the law of Lex Talionis. He didn't mention they violated uh, the contract they made with Shechem. Jacob said nothing about their desecration of the sign of the covenant, their symbol of faith. And of course, there isn't a word of concern about his just raped daughter, Dinah. Jacob's only concern is himself. His survival, saving his own skin, his complete and total self-centeredness. So there this patriarch stands and basically says, you've made me look bad. Face to face with his bloody, glistening sons. And they don't buy it. They fiercely shout back, shout back verse 31, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And despite the utter immorality of their murder spree, they assume the moral high ground. And Jacob is silenced. What a mess. This whole chapter is a mess. The whole thing is Jacob's fault. Jacob's faith had peaked when he wrestled with God. His triumph had been his weakness. He had striven with God and prevailed. He had become Israel. And following his reconciliation with God, he was reconciled with his brother Esau. But then came his deception of Esau. And instead of traveling straight to Bethel, as God had called them to do, he first sojourned in Succoth outside of the promised land. And we did enter the land. He didn't settle in Bethel, but 20 miles away in Shechem. It was almost obedience which is a nice way of saying disobedience. If Jacob had gone to Bethel in full obedience, none of this would have happened. The rape, the desecration, the genocide, the disgrace are all due to his disobedience. Moreover, I think this murderous deceit by his sons is rooted in his own deceit. I mean, why should they be concerned about deceiving the Shechemites when Jacob has already deceived so many people on so many occasions, the most recent being the deception of his brother Esau? What's wrong with their backing out of a commitment if it's okay for their father to do so? And on top of this, he had just provoked his son's revenge by his utter apathy about what happened to their sister, his daughter, Dinah. You know, it's really hard not to sort of side with Simeon and Levi here, particularly as the father of two daughters. Jacob just ticks me off. You know, and this becomes his life. We're going to see this terrible fruit come out in his life. He favors Joseph, and Leah's sons are going to hate Joseph because he's favored. It's going to result in his sale. To Egypt. And the sky will have fallen in on Jacob. And Jacob can see himself for what he is and how absurd he has been and how absurd we all are when we just utterly resist God's will. 
how tragic the consequences can be when we're merely being self-centered. You know, at the beginning of this message, I said I was going to focus in on one issue in particular. And that's the first issue, which is the problem of sexual assault. And I picked that particular sin because it's the one nobody talks about. The number of sexual assaults in our nation is staggering. According to the most recent statistics, every two minutes, someone in the United States is sexually assaulted. At least, and I think these are minimum numbers, one in four women and one in six men are or will be the victim of sexual assault sometime during their lifetime. Most recent article I saw in the Washington Post says one in three college women. Of all of these assaults, 80% will take place before the age of 34. And roughly 90% of those reporting being assaulted are women, although the evidence showed that the majority of sexual assaults go unreported. Before we get too far into this, let me commend to you the book Rid of My Disgrace. It actually comes from uh, 2 Samuel, the story of Amnon and Tamar, when after she's raped, Tamar asks, where do I go to get rid of my disgrace? It's a thoroughly biblical look at this issue, how to deal with it, and much of what I'm going to say comes directly from this book. They talk about sexual assault in terms of disgrace and grace. So that's how I'm going to address it this morning. Let me say, first of all, if you have suffered as a result of a sexual assault, now I heard from a lot of people this week, and I'm not sure the numbers for our nation are really all that different from the numbers for our church. I know a number of people have suffered through this. They have friends who suffered through this. They have family members who've suffered through this. Sadly, this is not uncommon. But if you have suffered as a result of sexual assault, the church and the gospel and grace should be and is for you. What happened to you was not your fault. You are not to blame. You did not deserve it. You did not ask for it. You should not be silenced. You are not worthless. You do not have to pretend like nothing happened. Nobody has a right to violate you. You are not responsible for what happened to you. You are not damaged goods. You're supposed to be treated with dignity and respect. And you were the victim of an assault, and it was wrong. You were sinned against, and despite all the pain, healing can happen, and there is hope. Well, you may agree that hope is out there. You may still feel a major effect of the sexual assault. Disgrace. A deep sense of a, a filthy defilement that's weighted down with shame. Now, disgrace is the opposite of grace. Grace is love that seeks you out even when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are or feel unlovable. Grace has the power to turn despair into hope. Grace listens, lifts up, cures, transforms, heals. Disgrace destroys, causes pain, deforms, wounds, 
alienates, isolates, discredits, makes you feel worthless, rejected, unwanted, and repulsive like a persona non grata, which literally means a person without grace. Disgrace, silence, and shuns. Your suffering of disgrace is only increased when others force your silence. The refusals of others to speak about sexual assault and listen to victims tell the truth is a refusal to offer grace and healing. And to your sense of disgrace, God enters the picture and restores, heals, and recreates through grace. Now, a good, really short definition of grace is one-way love. And that's the opposite of your experience of assault, which was one-way violence. And to your experience of one-way violence, God brings one-way love. The contrast between the two is staggering. One-way love doesn't avoid you, but comes near, not because of your merit, but because of your need. And it's the lasting transformation that can take place in human experience. One-way love is the change agent that you need for the pain that you either are or have experienced. Unfortunately, even if you read the literature and you go to the bookstore and find the books on recovery, the most common message is to self-heal, self-love, and self-help. And I think that's bad news to people who've been broken and wounded. Because sin and the effects of sin are similar to the laws of inertia. A person or an object in motion will continue on that trajectory until acted upon by an outside force. And if one is devastated by sin, and then there's a personal failure to rise above the effects of that sin, then that's, that just creates a snowball effect of shame. Basically, telling people, giving them the sola bootstraps line of, you know, fix it yourself, love yourself, heal yourself, makes things worse. Hurting people need something from the outside to stop the downward spiral. And so to hurting people, grace floods in from the outside at that point when hope to change yourself is lost. Grace declares and promises that you will be healed. One way love doesn't command you to heal thyself, but it declares you will be healed. Jeremiah 17, 14 promises, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. God's one-way love replaces self-love and is the real path to healing. This is amazingly good news. God heals our wounds. Can you receive grace and be rid of your disgrace? With the gospel of Jesus Christ, the answer is yes. The good news is fully expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and its scope is as far as the curse is found. Jesus is the redemptive work of God in our history, in our own lives, in our own flesh. Now, when we read in 2 Samuel about the rape of Tamar, we read about how she felt after assault. She was told to be quiet and go away. And what we read is Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe she wore and laid her hand upon her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And Jesus is the one who came to enter into her pain and her shame. Jesus was killed, not for revenge, 
but to bear her shame on the cross, to offer her a new robe of righteousness to replace her torn robes of disgrace. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 sort of takes on new meaning in this context. It says there, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus entered her pain and shame as her substitute to remove the stain of sin that was committed against her, and he rose from the dead to bring her healing and hope. Obviously, this is a hard subject. And I know there's some people that are going to have questions and concerns, and what do I do with this? I'm going to ask somebody to come up here and briefly share some words of healing and hope. Christine, if you would come down for a moment. Um, Pastor Silverno asked me to um, share just because of my experience in counseling survivors of sexual abuse. Um, just a, a note, unearthing these things is very, very painful and very difficult. And as a reminder, God is with you and present in your deepest darkness. And so is your community. And we ache to help and we ache to help um, heal your hurt. Um, on that note, if any women do not feel comfortable talking to the pastors or the elders about your experience, please know that I am very willing and um, hoping to help walk you through this journey over a cup of coffee or a couple of cups of coffee um, to help process this with you. Um, because of the conversations that will probably happen after this sermon, a quick note to those of you who don't have abuse in your story, be very, very, very careful to pull information from somebody who you suspect having abuse in their story. Um, as you can imagine, abuse and assault is riddled with shame and pain and powerlessness. And so to, to not let somebody tell you but to try and drag it from them is a very, very difficult thing for the survivor. And so if you are a survivor, please know that we are very ready and willing to listen and to love you through this, and we want to help process this with you. Thank you. This is an incredibly difficult topic. Um, and I had gotten this far and really had no idea how I was going to close this thing. And Friday afternoon, God is so good. Friday afternoon, I came across this beautiful short story that was published Friday afternoon. It's called The Garment. And I just want you to listen to it. She was to be presented to the king. Walking through the immense door, she handed her invitation to the guard. He ushered her into the great th throne room. Everything in the vast room radiated light. The entrance columns were of a brilliant shining alabaster. The highly polished marble floor and the walls gleamed. 
The chandeliers with their many prismed cut glass were reflecting myriads of light. Those surrounding the throne were dressed in white robes of splendor. She could not look upon the throne. It gave out a light that was too glorious to behold with human eyes. A voice called her name. It was the king. As she bowed before him, she glanced at herself with the pure, unshadowed light of the room. She gasped. Unworthiness overwhelmed her. She saw herself differently. She was dirty. Her clothes were crusted with filth. The stench of a thousand sins surrounded her. She could not remain in the presence of the king. Not like this. She turned to leave, but was compelled to stay when she saw the king leaving his throne of glory. He moved from the throngs of worshipers that surrounded the throne to stand in front of her. With great love and compassion, he placed upon her a new garment, a garment that was pure white. The filth was gone. The stench ceased. She had become as clean as the garment, and in an instant, all had become new. The king himself had made her presentable. With humble gratitude and great joy, she just stood there before Jesus, her king. Her sole hope, Jacob's sole hope, Dinah's sole hope, Tamar's sole hope, and your sole hope lay in the ultimate son of Jacob, the ultimate Israel, Christ the Savior, who bore the wrath of God for our sin, turning it all away for those who believe. Sin and shame were overcome by Christ at the cross. And that's what really matters for you and me. I want you to close with thoughts of Christ and his cross. Think about him. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. A powerful prayer that reflects these truths is the prayer for the third Sunday in Lent as found in the Book of Common Prayer. And as I lead us in this prayer, I want you to listen carefully and make it your own. Let's pray. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.